Welcome to the Unilever and Spark Change Innovation for Good podcast, a series exploring the people and ideas sparking positive change in the world. In this episode, we're talking to Seventh Generation's Kate Ogden on what it means to fight environmental racism and why developing climate change solutions isn't enough. Along the Mississippi River, located between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, is an 85-mile-long industrial stretch packed with petroleum plants and riddled with pollution. The predominantly Black population of what's now known as Cancer Alley is 50 times more likely to get cancer than the average American, and the area has been devastated by the COVID-19 pandemic. This is one of many examples across the U.S. of what's known as environmental racism. Climate impacts are exacerbating the long-standing inequalities in American life. And while not many people make the connection between climate change and inequity, Seventh Generation has built many of its advocacy efforts around this very topic. To many, Seventh Generation is a green cleaning company, but behind the scenes, the company's team is vehemently fighting for climate justice, from advocating for federal policy change to providing education and inspiration around voting and using purchasing power for good. The company is manufacturing safe household products and doing everything in its power to support a more just, equitable, sustainable future. Businesses are increasingly searching for solutions to the biggest issues we face as society and a global community. But who is involved in developing these solutions and who benefits from them? I'm Jessica Rubino, Executive Director of Content at New Hope Network, and I spoke with Kate Ogden, Seventh Generation's Movement Building and Advocacy Manager, about tackling environmental racism and who needs to have a seat at the table. Environmental racism describes the fact that the risks and the impacts of environmental hazards disproportionately burden communities of color. So study after study has shown that Black and Hispanic, Hispanic communities, when compared to white communities, are exposed to higher proportions of air pollution, toxic waste sites, landfills, lead poisoning, general proximity to polluting industries. So it's really about who is at the table and who isn't when decisions are made about where to site a highway or a pipeline or an industry and who bears the burden of those decisions. So climate justice is really an extension of environmental justice. It's an approach to addressing the climate crisis that starts from a place of acknowledging that vulnerable and marginalized communities like Black communities, Indigenous communities, other communities of color, low-income communities are being hit first and hardest by the climate crisis. And not only are they being hit first and hardest, but those communities in general are also the least responsible for causing the climate crisis. So, you know, it's also about understanding how the climate crisis works to exacerbate the negative impacts of racial inequity and economic inequity, how it functions as a compounding factor. I think, you know, if you wanted to tackle the climate crisis, one way you could do that would be to ask yourself, what's the fastest way to cut emissions and just put blinders on and and pursue that? And the problem with that approach is that 
you know, at the end of the day, at the end of, of your work to reduce emissions, you're still going to have environmental racism. You know, you might just have sort of low emissions racism. So climate justice was really about putting the people and the communities that are now and have historically borne a disproportionate burden from environmental racism and from the climate crisis at the center of determining the solutions that will repair harm and that will bring benefits to those communities. And that'll put us on a path to a future where where everyone can thrive, no matter what your race or your income or what zip code you live in. Wow, Kate, it's such important work. And you mentioned a couple of times the need for getting the right people at the table and getting marginalized communities and those voices heard in this conversation. How do you do that uh, through your work? Well, one of the foundational aspects of our advocacy model is that it is partnership led. So for me, that's a core aspect of what it means for Seventh Generation to advocate for climate justice. We build our advocacy strategy in consultation with the organizations that are leading the climate justice movement in the U.S. So we follow their leadership and their expertise, and we ask ourselves and we ask them, you know, what role can we play to support the work? What role do you want us to play? And that that's really where we start. And then in terms of our overall approach on climate justice, there's sort of three broad areas that we focus on. And and all of those areas are through that partnership. So the first is we know with the scale and the the gravity of the climate crisis, we have to approach it from as many sort of different possible angles as we can. So the first thing that we think about is we have to make as much progress as we can where it's politically possible right now. And for the past several years, we've worked to support the passage of equitable climate policies at the state level. So right now we're working with a coalition in New York State called New York Renews to help pass a bill called the Climate and Community Investment Act. Through the work of New York Renews in 2019, New York passed an emission standard, uh, which we also worked on. That's really the gold standard in terms of of the strength of it, but also the provisions included in the bill to ensure equity. And this year with New York Renews, we're focused on the next phase of that work, which is about funding and investing in a just and equitable transition to clean and renewable energy in a way that creates good green jobs and in a way that really ensures that every New Yorker experiences the benefits of that transition. And then the second thing that we know we need to do is we have to we have to do the work to build and to demonstrate public will for just climate solutions so that we're able to change what is politically possible in the future. And one of the ways that we're doing that this year is supporting and and talking to our consumer audience about the Thrive Agenda. Uh, the Thrive uh, Thrive stands for Transform, Heal, and Renew by investing in a vibrant economy. And it's really a blueprint for how we revive our economy how we address the interlocking crises of climate change, racial justice, public health, economic inequity. So we're giving our consumers a chance to learn about the Thrive Agenda and then to take action by contacting their member of Congress and asking them to support Thrive as the framework for how we we build back from this moment that we're all experiencing. And then finally, we know that we have to stop this onslaught of attacks that we are seeing on voter rights across the country. And we have to do that because the strength of our democracy depends on it. But we also have to do that to address the climate crisis, because 
we know almost 70% of voters want to see government action on the climate crisis. And for the U.S. to take action at the scale and speed that is required over the next 10 years, we need to have elected leaders who are serious about the climate crisis. So these efforts that we're seeing to suppress voting, to make it harder to vote, are wrong and they're undemocratic, and they're also going to make it incredibly challenging to have government action on climate at the scale that science and justice require. So we're also supporting two important pieces of legislation at the federal level, the For the People Act and the Voting Rights Advancement Act. And together, those two bills will protect and expand voter rights to ensure that the will of the American people is reflected in the platforms of our elected leaders. Well, this is such an incredible example of using business as a force for good. And as you're talking, Kate, it just reinforces how much your company is able to do, how much seventh generation is able to do and how well thought out your strategy is. I'm curious, you know, these issues are some of the biggest that we're facing as a society, as a global community. What's needed to scale them? You talked about the importance of of partnership and, of you know, advocacy on the state and federal levels. What do you think can kind of get you to this place that you're you're striving for? These are big goals, uh, very big ones. So I commend you for that. And I, I wonder um, how, how you plan to achieve them. They are. I mean, they're huge. And I think that what I hold so closely on this and what drives so much of our advocacy strategy is understanding that we cannot do it alone. I mean, seventh generation has a long history of activism, but on climate, we really started from a place of wanting to be accountable to and to reduce our own impact on the climate. We wanted to bring our business in line with the Paris climate targets. And what we realized is that over 90% of our emissions comes from consumers using our products to wash and dry their clothes and wash and dry their dishes. So we are always working to reduce the climate impacts of our products and of, of our operations. But even if we were perfect in that effort, and we're not, it is a work in progress. But even if we were, we're targeting less than 10% of the emissions associated with our business. So we realize that we have to step beyond sustainability into advocacy, and we need more companies to take that step to advocate for just equitable science-based climate policy. It's not enough at this point to have sustainability targets and strategies. We need systemic change, and we as a business community need to be advocates for that change. And, you know, at the risk of kind of repeating the question back, I mean, scale Scale is exactly what we need to advocate for. I mean, we need massive government investment in action on the climate crisis, undoing and repairing the harm of environmental injustice and racism, creating millions of safe, family-sustaining green jobs. President Biden recently introduced a $2 trillion infrastructure plan, and that is a good start, but it needs to be a down payment. It needs to be the first of many installments. We need to radically transform nearly every aspect of society, and we have to do it very quickly. And the business community really needs to be a partner and an advocate for that work. Now, if we think about a radical transformation 
what does that look like? And you are definitely, you and the whole team over there fighting the good fight. Now, if we think about a radical transformation, what does that look like? And what really is, how would you define a fair and equitable and sustainable future? Yeah, you know, I, I think for me, it, it's it's pretty simple. You know, I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old, so I think a lot about the world that I want for them. And I don't think you know, I don't think it's anything too complicated, right? I want them to live in a world where every single person can thrive regardless of their race, regardless of what zip code they were born in or live in now, regardless of, you know, their background. You know, it's a world where everyone is able to live a safe, economically secure, healthy life that's in strong relationship with with others and is is in strong relationship with the environment that sustains us. Uh, that's, that's what we're building for. I think that's the legacy that we, we want for ourselves and that we want for future generations. Well, thank you so much, Kate, feeling inspired and motivated. Thank you for sharing more about the work that you're doing and for talking with New Hope Network today. Thanks so much for having me. It was really great to be here. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Kate.